why are you just getting closer? I'm just going to get closer and closer until you leave. Our faces merge together. That's called a kiss. Hello, no. everybody, and welcome to the 82nd Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games, card games, Paul's creaking chair, tabletop the, games, the spirit of play, role-playing games, and food-based games, which is our theme today, isn't it? Uh, there's a bit of food in there's this one. There's a lot of food in this one. How have you been, Paul? Uh, mm, great. Hungry. Hungry. Very hungry, because I have an appetite for games, and an appetite for food, and an appetite for life. Jeez. All at the same time, through different courses. I do worry that I spend too much of my life fixating on board games. I thought you were going to say food. (laughs) You can't spend too much of your life fixating on food. You can have too much of anything. That's why they have the phrase, too much. That is... Join us next month for our next podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What games have we got coming... (laughs) We've got Welcome To coming up, which is a game that's not really about food. It's got houses. Houses, by definition, probably have food in. We've got Walkstar, which is absolutely all about food. We've got Fungi, which is all about mostly food and occasionally vomiting. And it's true. Uh, Village Attacks, which had an element of us trying to cook people, which is cannibalism is food in a way. And Champions of Midgard, which one of the resources in that game is food that you can put on a boat. Usually with people, you don't just put the food on a boat and, like, point at it and laugh and go, <laughs> you know, look at that, Bill, it's it's some meat on a boat. <laughs> you might if you're a Viking. There's probably not much to do in 800 AD. You probably got very bored. That yeah. might put some food on a boat for a laugh. So what I what I can tell from, from this is that you yes. own A Feast for Odin, but you have never read any of the supplementary manuals about you know what this is really because you don't seem to know anything about vikings but there's a lot of info in a feast road in about vikings and about some of the significant historical figures or ways they behaved and i haven't read most of it because it's back in canada and i'm not and there's a copy here near me very now which i could actually just go and read to educate myself but that sounds proactive and you know me yeah, I, I do, uh, to my to my endless shame. Detriment. You, uh, I'm having a pretty good week, because on Monday, when you and I got together to write the news, we got to write about the first announced expansion for A Feast for Odin. Which adds more food, it adds meat, it adds more meat. It adds Norwegians as well. Which, which are a kind of meat. I, yes, although I don't know. It's not confirmed yet if you're going to be eating Norwegians in the first A Feast for Odin expansion. In the game, no. Out of the game, it's up to you. There's some great expansions coming this year. Uh, but we should stay the course like vikings who are intent on raiding some board games we gotta talk about these board games that we're gonna talk about all right should we talk about the least foodie one so far which is welcome to which we like you've played a couple of times i played uh and like i feel it doesn't feel new anymore it's not am i correct it's properly coming out in september that's right but we've been able to play it early because we're cool. Yeah, there are some early copies floating around, and my goodness, um, the game isn't coming out for a few months, yep. and yet there's the very real risk that we'll be bored of it before our review in September, uh, because uh, go on, it's so good that I want to play it like every week. I constantly want to crack this game out, and if I keep doing that, then by the time the review comes around, people will be like, Quinns, what do you think of this new game? Welcome to, and I'll be like, oh, I've played it to death. But, but only because so, it's so good. Well, this is it. We, you, me, we would have played it to death because we would have played it with so many people because it is a roll and write game, mm-hmm. which is kind of in vogue right now. And it's so accessible and it's so easy to understand the basic rules that like almost anybody can learn it in 10 or 15 minutes. Yep. And then it's 
one of those games that has that low barrier of entry but becomes really challenging very quickly and like a lot of roll and writes because you you write on a little map and you fill things in the more you play the further your game goes the tougher it becomes the more you dig yourself into your own holes which is kind of compelling because you get to the end of the game and you're like i want to play that again because i can do it again just better yeah so welcome to is a game where you're all designing suburbs you rip off a piece of paper from the game's enormous pad and then it has all these suburbs you know, printed on, and we'll all simultaneously be filling out these suburbs. So most roll and writes, like Yahtzee is a good example, or um, Ganshon Clever, which is the one everyone's talking about this year, sees players rolling dice and you go, oh, I'm going to use that six we rolled. Um, Welcome to instead uses cards. So you flip off, uh, you flip off, that sounds rude, but it's not. It's a perfectly family friendly <laughs> game. You're going to flip cards off the top of these decks to reveal new numbers, like you might have a nine, a 11, and a three. But also, each of these numbers will be uh, shown uh, with a special power because the reverse of the card you just flipped to reveal that number will show a thing. So you might have seven and build a swimming pool, or eight and hire some interns to do some construction for you. Um, And so players are picking a number that they're then filling out on their sheet and also getting a cool special power, like a swimming pool or a lovely park. A swimming pool is a very good power. And so here's the thing. I thought I was quite good at this and I did okay in my first game, but because you are filling in a neighborhood, numbering all of these houses, like one, two, three, four, drawing this, you know, stuff permanently on your map, you end up in this classic situation where you start that you're numbering houses, there's 10 houses on the street. They just have to be in sequential order. Right. They don't have to be like one, two, three, four. They could be like one, three, five, as long as there isn't number seven before. after number nine. Or right, before. exactly. Yeah. And you get into this thing where you're like, oh, I just, I do I fill in a certain hole right now knowing that it commits me to something later on? Or... And you you literally create your own mistakes. You write them, you put them right in front of you, and nothing anybody does ruins you or prevents you from doing anything because these cards are open for everybody to choose. could have a game of two players like we had, or you could have ten players. doesn't matter. You all make your own choice from whichever cards are out there. Make your own decision about where to scribble on the map. And... It, and it's fabulous. So I, I can't work out how to describe why it's good. I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because Roland Wrights are having a really big year. Everyone's yes. grabbing their pencils. Yes. They're calling their friends. They're saying, come over and play a Roland Wright with me. <laughs> uh, so, but and because of this, we've been going, oh, it's our duty then to like get in on this hype yeah. train and see which one, the, which is the best one. Mm-hmm. And we had this weird thing where Welcome 2 was one of the first ones I played. And I was like, oh, my God, Roland Wrights are amazing. I don't. I'm not thinking they're yeah. that fabulous. I just think we were lucky to play Welcome To first because we have played a bunch now. We've played like six or seven of the very, very best ones. And Welcome To is the only one that I truly adore. It is the best roll and write I've played. And it's the one I am, you know, without doubt, most excited about trying again. I enjoyed Gan Sean Clever. Am I saying that right? I yep. don't know. I enjoyed that. And I would play that again as well as a kind of interesting mathematics puzzle. Yep. But it doesn't have the same level of, I don't know if it's because it's abstract and it doesn't have a theme, or I don't know if it's because 
the the systems within Welcome to just work so better. But it's I am excited about playing it again rather than playing it again as an idle time passing yep. exercise. An, another game we played uh, was Castles of Burgundy, the dice game. Yeah, which, which as of last year, mm. a lot of people were saying this is the best roll and write. And so we eagerly got that. In fact, it's not even yeah. in print in English. We had to get a German version, such as our dedication to this new roll and write <laughs> genre. Um, but we played it and we're like, oh, well, this is... I, I really quite enjoyed Castles of Burgundy as a roll and write. But it's, again, nowhere near as good as Welcome no, to. No, no. Like, I, I had a perfectly okay time with it. I, it's an interesting case of, like, filling in hexes to collect resources and then you can use those resources to fill in more hexes faster. This is Castles of Burgundy, the yeah, dice game. Yes. And then, uh, you know, naturally you want to collect sets of things and fill in as much as possible and then you get points at the end based on that and again it was an interesting kind of puzzle but it wasn't as exciting or as i don't know immediately relatable because the other thing about welcome to there's something so simple and relatable about just you're just trying to number some houses in order and put in some pools and then subdivide the houses and turn them into a little collection and one mechanic that's uh that's involved in the game we haven't talked about yet in Welcome To. And before we get further, I'll say one of the reasons Welcome To is lovely is you get a big piece of paper, not like a little piece of paper, big one, (laughs) with a lovely looking suburb on it. And like, in a game where part of the joy is that tactile thrill of taking a pencil or a pen and writing on a piece of paper, Mm -hmm. it's just a lovely piece of paper to write on. It's the prettiest roll and write game I've ever seen. And like, drawing numbers in the houses, circling swimming pools, crossing off like uh, errors or, or drawing fences is a real pleasure. Like, I feel like I'm, you know, like a kid with a colouring in book. It, it is like drawing a map, or it is like you're given the skeleton of a map and you start to sketch in all the details. Yes, so this is one of the other mechanics in it. And, you know, there's quite a few, like, interlocking systems here. So, yes, you are taking numbers and writing them on houses. Oh, I'll take a seven this turn and put that on one of the houses in this street, but am I going to... Probably the one in the middle, maybe? maybe. I mean, that'd be fine, right? right? How could that go wrong? It certainly won't result in me being unable to finish this street later. But also, um, a lot of the cards allow you to... Uh, put fences in your town and fences subdivide streets so maybe you put a fence down to create a block of four houses so you've got your street that goes from like one to 15 and you put a fence of the first three which creates a block of three houses Mm -hmm. and all the players are racing to complete little districts first so for example at the start of a game a card might come out that says the first person to have four completed blocks of four houses will get this big reward. So immediately you're all racing for that, but then you start compromising because you might have a street that goes one, two, three, six, because you are so desperate to create a block of four houses. And that just gives you massive headaches later on. There's an advanced variant where you can essentially demolish one of your houses at any point in the game and replace it with a roundabout. (laughs) And the advantage of a roundabout is it's two automatic fences on either sides of the roundabout because there's a road. But the disadvantage is you lose a house. Right. Which is like this, all of these things are like little vital natural resources that if you can use them correctly, if you can just, as people say, just put all your ducks in a row and, you know, maybe that's the case of you fill in the final number at the very last moment, but you waited for that number the whole game. You want to use as many of those houses as efficiently as possible. But it's that risk reward thing of when do you hold out? When do you fill in a number? When do you sort of consign that house to a bin and tell the people who live there that they have to go because they're going to be turned into a junction or traffic feature? <laughs> or when do you bis? When do you bis? Uh, bis? Can we talk? Should we talk about bis? We I, are bis boys. We have not yet begun to bis. Bis? Uh, is, what is bis? It's that address thing where you can 
It's an you've American me- thing, I guess. All right, you've messed up the numbering of your houses, and if a BIS card appears, it allows you to turn something into, like, 2A instead yeah, basically. of 2, something like that. It's like it's some kind of American street thing, which most Americans I talk to haven't heard of, which makes BIS all the funnier, because BIS. BIS is an intrinsically funny BIS. word to me. But the BIS power is, like, you take the BIS, and then in addition to writing, like, a 7, you can write, like, 7 BIS next to it, mm-hmm. which means you can fill out two houses in one turn. But the penalty for bissing is severe. And do not biss unless you are ready to accept the consequences for biss. I'll tell you a biss story at the very end of the podcast. Okay. It's a, a true We're never going to remember story. that. I'll write it on my hand. There you go. Take a sharpie. Like, take this. this a sharpie. No, that's too permanent. But yeah, the more times you biss, then the bigger the negative penalty becomes. So uh, yeah, it's, it's just a game full of nice choices. Every turn, it's a nice choice. Every turn, it's satisfying. Every turn, you're building. And yeah, what a delight that you can play with like 10 people. That's actually the first time I played it. I yeah. Was in a bar and this guy had it and was like, well, we can all play and just ripped off like 12 pieces of paper and we all played at the same time. And it was fine. Yeah. And that's that's an interesting thing. You can watch the other people around you, see what they're doing, learn from them or learn from their mistakes or... Or just ignore them, which, yeah. is, which tends to be what I do. Just play my... Lose that's myself in the world of Biss. Totally okay. It's totally okay. Yeah. And I, I like that. I like that openness. Yeah. So we're going to be talking a lot more about Welcome To later in the year. We're going to definitely be giving it the full video treatment because we want to do a YouTube video about Roland Wrights and the new phenomenon of Roland Wright, but frankly, we were going to do a roundup of lots of Roland Wright games, but I I just would much rather talk about Welcome To Forever. I think that's a fine thing. We do that and then we we do a small nod to other things that are out there, but we say, we think this is the best one. You should try this. Yeah, yeah. You should try try this. How about... Walkstar. Oh. So I, you've been hanging on to play this for a long time. I haven't yet played this. This is a game about cooking and making customers happy, right? Yes, it's a cooperative dice game by Tim Fowers. I've uh, heard of him. So this is Walkstar, which is a pun on Rockstar. You see what he did there? Uh, yep, yep, it's a game yep, about running a yep. Chinese restaurant. Um, oh. Tim Fowers has made uh, made most recently uh, Fugitive, Fugitive, um, which Paul, you did a lovely video review of. Uh, just a, what a fabulous little small quite, box game. Yeah, quite a clever, tight two-player game that I I liked, and then realised that I liked a lot more than I first realised I liked it. And it's that level of like where you're like this, you know, I can't, I need you in my life, and stay <laughs> with me, and I know now that you matter to me very much, and. I took you for granted, and I don't want to do that anymore. You say this like you're worried that Fugitive is going to break up from you. It's literally a game about running away. It, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, but yeah, Fugitive... Um, uh, he also designs Burgle Brothers, which uh, we have a written review of if you good, search Yeah, good Google. cooperative game. Yep. Search Google for Shut Up and Sit Down Burgle Bros. Bros. Uh, and it's a game about some brothers who burgle uh, and sisters. It's not sexist. Um, but yeah, Matt had a review of that. We love it. Really nice co-op game. Um, but yeah, this is one of Tim Fowers' earliest games. He keeps doing new editions of it that kind of tweak it slightly because he was a younger designer back then and, you know, not younger, but less experienced. And I'm well, sure we all were younger back then. It's true. Statistically God. speaking, most people were younger if you go back in time. But um, so Burgle, I mean, not Burgle, uh, Walkstar, there you go. Walk um, Brothers. Hey, let's take a moment here to appreciate how good all the themes are in Tim Fowers' games. None of them are geeky. They're all different. They're all sort of really curious and flavorful. Yes, and he's worked with some good artists and designers as well, so they have a nice style to them. All the boxes are really small. My yep. goodness, Tim, we're big fans of your work. Um, but yeah, so Walkstar is a game where all the players working together to run a Chinese restaurant. There's a loan you have to pay off. You have like four days to earn enough money. So it's, it's, very, it's intimidating, frankly. So everyone has a dish that they can serve. Um, a, 
like maybe I make egg rolls and you make, I don't know, some chow mein dish. Okay. Um, this is an, in America to yeah. clarify. Um, we're running a Chinese takeaway in America. So a cus- you'll flip a card off the deck and it'll be a customer who wants egg rolls. That's fine because we look at the ingredients board. I need, uh, you know, rice paper and I need or like sort of, it is rice paper, right? It's, it's like a rice flour. Uh, uh, maybe. Anyway, it's like a sort of egg roll sheet and, you know, some new, some bok choy and bamboo or whatever. So, but we have those two ingredients and I'll slide them down on the central board we all share to show we've got ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then that customer is served. Great. Um, the next customer, oh, he wants egg rolls again. And that's not great because uh, we don't have any more ingredients for egg rolls. So then this is where the dice come in. Everyone has dice in front of them. And the way the game is set up is I'm making egg rolls. I serve those orders, but you're the one who spends their dice to make the ingredients for egg rolls. So suddenly I'll be like, oh, Paul, we need more, uh, you know, bok choy and we need more rice wrappers. And so then you'll start spending your dice and then you're trying to make sets. So, for example, you can always spend two dice to get one ingredient, but you look down at your sheet, you can spend two dice to get two bok choy if they add up to seven. Mm -hmm. So maybe then you're looking at your dice pool and you're going, oh, do I have the dice for that? Oh, no, but Quinn's does. You look at my dice. You can then spend like fortune tokens to grab my dice. Dice you spend to chop and prepare ingredients then go into this sink in the middle of the table. And when everyone's dice are in the sink, that's when you can um, sort of do do what's called a wash and everyone gets their dice back and (laughs) re-rolls them. Um, It's very sweet, um, but it's all played in real time because you only have 30 seconds to fulfill each order. Oh, wow. But it has a really nice mechanic whereby... um, you have a 30-second sand timer to fulfill each order. So it's like, complete chaos in the kitchen. Oh, my God, grilly dice. No way, we need beef. We need beef. We need beef. And then you'll fail to get beef, and then the sand will run out. And at that point, when you fulfill that order, you don't get a tip, so you get $1 less for it. But, and this is a lovely uh, sort of just balance between tension and relaxation, because once that sand has run out, it doesn't matter anymore. Then it can become like an almost turn-based game where you go, okay, well, look, we screwed that. Let's look down at what we've got, what we need, and prepare for the next customer. Yeah. Because then you have infinite time. Yes. Because you're going to serve that customer, but you do all the preparation, and then the new customer comes to the door and wants a drop soup or something. Yeah, that makes sense. So you have this mixture of, if you can get things done in enough time, that's great. That's a bonus. But you're not horribly penalized. You have that prep time for... And I've talked on the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast before that I look at totally real-time games like Space Alert or Escape the Curse in the Temple. Mm -hmm. Great games that are in my collection. I can see them. They're like two feet to the left of where we're recording this podcast. But I tend not to get them out because real-time is just stressful. And I felt that Walkstar was a lovely balance between, oh, this is exciting and stressful, but also it's never going to get too stressful because we get those moments of uh, sort of breathing and relaxation. Um, lots of other lovely stuff too. Like at the end of each workday, you get to spend uh, the income you've got on yeah. upgrades for the restaurant and ingredients and new recipes. Um, it has a really nice, simple deck building mechanic where every new recipe you get has three cards that then um, all get shuffled together to create a deck of things people might order. So if we make noodles and soup and egg rolls, then we'll have three cards depicting each and we'll shuffle them together to see what customers want. However... If we, you know, get upgrades for specific ingredients like, I don't know, eggs and, uh, you know, pork or something, then we know that we can make some recipes easier than others, which means we can start handing out coupons in the neighborhood. And coupons, coupon cards, are versions of a recipe that cost $1 less that we can always shuffle into the deck. So we're going to have more customers coming in and wanting our pork noodles because... 
yeah. you know, we've handed out coupons for them, but, but we'll make less money. So you've got that, that again, that mix of like reliable customers, something a little easier, but you're making less cash from it. Yeah, which exactly. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's lots of other stuff too. There's, you know, the question of when to buy new recipes and how to hand them out. There's um, a lovely mechanic whereby every player, the number of dishes they served, um, if, if you, you start with three dice to make ingredients, but if you mm-hmm. serve five dishes, suddenly you now have five dice for the next night. So you want to take it in turns, creating a deck where this turn, Paul is going to just serve a ton of recipes. So you get, then you unlock all your dice, then Matt can serve some recipes and get all of his dice. Um, so it just, it was just a Tim Fowers game, you know, full of great ideas <laughs> uh, that worked on this. Like, I don't know, I've not played earlier editions of Walkstar, but in this one, they just worked really nicely. And you've you've been wanting to try this for quite a while. I, I did, because I like the theme. Yeah. I, I really love the, I don't know, the, there's something about it that's kind of like Mysterium, you know? It's, it's evocative without being geeky, you know? Yeah. It's an interesting theme with loads of color and heart. Um, th- without sort of like ever being like off-putting in no, a way it's that rela- like it's relatable. Yeah, exactly. In that kind of way that Sushi Go is as well. Yeah. The one thing I would say that did like make me like you know wrinkle my nose a little bit is mm-hmm. being a game set in a Chinese restaurant is good, but it did have some stereotypes of like in in the event deck and characters. Um, there was some stuff there that played on stereotypes of Chinese restaurants that I would have been a lot more comfortable with if I'd known that one of the designers or the artists or someone had, you know, was like Chinese American mm-hmm. or even Chinese. So mm-hmm. that, you know, someone who could feel more comfortable making fun of like their own culture. Whereas, for example, in the event deck, one of the cards and most of them are fine, but one of them was like free meat and you can get some free meat. But the picture on the card was like a cat in an alley looking nervous. Mm, okay, so, yeah. you know, the and that's kind of you can see why that might be. It doesn't feel like a joke that you're allowed to... It feels like that very low-hanging fruit joke. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with low-hanging fruit if that's your background and your culture. But, you know, and who knows? Maybe maybe Tim Fowers or someone who worked in that game has a background that I don't know about. But it didn't feel quite right. All the same, I really enjoyed Walkstar. I thought it was a really lovely little dice game. And if you see it, uh, if it sounds like your cup of tea or you just want something in a small box that's co-op, takes 45 minutes, and it's just really silly and funny. Yeah. Um, good with two players, almost certainly good with four players. You know, uh, that's Walkstar. That was not a funny segment, but gosh, I just really quite liked it. No, that's great. And as a game where we're probably not going to give it the full review treatment, I just wanted to really put a spotlight on it in a podcast and say, hey, I enjoyed this. This was great. No, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I remember like years back you being, I don't know if we wrote a new story about it, but something came up and it had been uh, on your radar for a while. Mm. So it's nice to see you finally snap that up. In terms of... Or speaking of things that we've also snapped up recently, you and I got to play Fungi. Fungi! Fungi in a pub, outdoors in a pub on a nice day. And this is something I think Pip originally reviewed. Is it an older edition of this for us? No, she reviewed the current edition that we played called Fungi. I believe in America it's called Morals. Yeah, uh, that's it. Or Morels. I don't know how to pronounce that. But M-O-R-E-L-S. Which is another way of talking about mushrooms and fungus and things like this. But if people want to go and read Pip's review, again, they can search for Fungi on shutupandsitdown.com. Um, or just Funky Review on Google. Um, it's a game about collecting mushrooms. And I will yeah. say, we played it outdoors <laughs> and there were some seagulls near us that must have been a different species of seagull from what <laughs> than what usually hangs around uh, here in Brighton because they just were making the most fabulous noises. Mm. They were about eight feet away going, ah! 
That's not. That's the sound of like someone who's about to fall off a balcony. That's not fabulous. <laughs> that's quite bad. It was making us laugh. It was because we knew it was a bird and not a human in distress. That's true. So, Paul, uh, how would you like to tell people about Fungi? And I'm jealous wow. here because what a great game to be able to give people the high concept of. I I came into this with no expectations. My goodness, I had quite a good time with Fungi. This game where. Close your eyes for a moment and imagine that you're in the forest. Unless you're driving. Strolling. Don't close your eyes if you're driving. Imagine you're strolling through the forest and you're peckish and you've got your bag and you've got a pan that you're ready to cook with and you know how to make kindling. You just need something to eat. But the forest is full of mushrooms and so many of them, most of them are edible and you know which ones aren't, so you avoid those. So step by step, you walk through the forest. You have this sort of circle of cards that you almost literally walk your way around with another card that represents your feet, (laughs) showing where you're going. And you can pick up the mushrooms that are by your foot card. And to cook mushrooms, you just need to collect a set of three or more of those but sometimes sometimes Quentin it gets dark and the moon comes up and then you can pick different mushrooms by moonlight but because it's dark you don't know what you're getting so you blind draw those from a different deck rather than this open selection of cards in front of you well then why would I ever want to do that well it just might fill in the the set that you're struggling to complete and also it will be worth more points because the idea is you are gradually set collecting all these mushrooms and then putting them down in a pan to cook them and get points for them but you will always want to try and grab, in any set collection game, of course, as many different cards as you can to increase the chances of mixing your sets together. And here's the other thing. Night mushrooms are better for sticks. And you probably don't know this, but the way, the best way to get anything in a forest is with a stick. That's and what you can do... Sounds reasonable. It's true. What you can do is also draw stick cards that allow you to reach with a stick and get mushrooms that are out of the reach of your feet. Because remember, you're picking up the mushrooms that are currently by your feet, but not anymore because you've got sticks. So you reach out and you you just stab that mushroom that's a bit further away and you hook it into your bag before the other player does. Isn't that good? You also, mentioned another player, Paul. I thought we were just having a nice no, walk. Well, there's two of us and we're doing that thing where you look at the tableau of mushrooms in front of you and you go, next turn, I can't take these mushrooms because Quentin will take them because it will be his turn because it's a back and forth game. So mm, what am I going to collect based on that? Or should I get some more sticks and try and stick mushrooms before wait wait that's not a mushroom that's butter (laughs) which occurs naturally in the forest so i'll get that with my stick put that in my pan what does that do that makes my mushrooms taste better so i get more points same for cider which for some reason is also in the forest which i will hook with my stick put in my pan definitely will drink whatever i find in the forest because that's <laughs> whatever this weird mysterious bottle i'll definitely put that in An my mouth. unlabeled jug hanging from a tree that's a good find that's going in your pan it's a surprisingly like it's a very light uh playful nice theme for a set collection game but it's surprisingly cute one of the weird things that got me about this is you know obviously in the creation of this game someone's commissioned an artist or some artists and said hey i need you to draw lots of mushrooms like what i just need you to draw lots of mushrooms games full of mushrooms draw lots of mushrooms but like make them look good and they have and there's all these really nice bucolic like portrait pictures of some mushrooms in a forest or some mushrooms by a farm and i'm looking at all these cards and going this is actually quite nice you know there are lots of let's not bury the lead either this Mm -hmm. is a really good tactical two-player card game and it's that rarest of things of just oh this is a really cute good-looking theme and the game is really good 
Um, but there are lots of very cutesy games about uh, card games now about sort of tea or we've not yeah. played it, but of course there's herbaceous, which is about planting herbs. Yes. Um, but I do like to, you know, sort of draw a line and and put games on either side because lots of games are just cute for the sake of being cute. Oh, yep. you're making pie or you're making tea or you're throwing a party or whatever. Whereas a fungi is not, it's a cute theme. You know, cooking mushrooms in a pan with butter is cute, but it's clearly made by someone who does this for real because like the manual has a section, I thought it was quite a long manual, but then I realized no, half of it is given up to describing all the mushrooms in the game and being like, ah, <laughs> oh, this one, this one is amazing, but it looks poisonous. This is fine. Also, hey, lots of poisonous mushrooms don't actually kill you. They just make you a little bit sick. Yeah. And this is a mechanic we should mention because there is fly amanita in the game, which is a sort of red, the, 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 the mushroom that appears in sort of fairy tales in the in 1950s of like that big red spotted red speckled toadstool yeah. thing, yeah. Um, that you can imagine a, to- a, a sort of gnome sitting on. But that's, I mean, I didn't pick those up. Why would you pick those up? Well, Paul, because if you pick them up, then you uh, vomit, basically. I mean, the manual doesn't say that exactly, but it says if you eat this poisonous mushroom, you must discard down to four cards. But... This is the real mechanic of the game because I ate it so I could vomit up some mushrooms that I guess were in my <laughs> bag or something. I, I, but um, the reason you'd want to do that is this game is unbelievably strict about hand limit. Yeah. And to a large extent, your hand limit is the game. Because lots of games, they say, oh, you can't hold more than, I don't know, seven cards. So if you draw more than seven cards, you have to pick what you want to discard. Whereas Fungi is like, no, 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 no. If you've got eight cards and your hand limit is eight cards, you cannot even pick up any more cards. You are stuck with what you get. And so here's the thing. You have this growing discard pile in the middle where if on your turn you decide not to pick up any of those mushrooms, just keep walking. It grows up to, I think, about four and then it resets. It would be great if you could just go through that discard pile and pick the one that you most need and add it to your hand and throw the rest away. But you can't. It's like Mm -hmm. you have all of that pile at whatever size it is right now or you have none of it because the rules about mushrooms are strict and they cannot be. <laughs> and so it does become this game that's very tight and you do start having to calculate your moves ahead and try and work out what your opponent might do. And as you pointed out when we were playing, there's this thing of, oh, you know, I should have been paying attention to what he was collecting because there's only like four of these cards in the deck. Yeah. And has my opponent just seized two of them, meaning... I can't make a set, but I might still want to deny my opponent. Yeah, it has a nice memory element where I dislike games where I can conceivably memorize everything that goes like in the discard pile and yeah. that would benefit me because it's like, well, if I can do it, then I kind of have to. Yeah. Whereas fungi, there are too many kinds of mushrooms. And also they're mushrooms. It's very difficult to like, they're not visually very distinct. So it's got the nice thing where you're never going to remember everything that's in the bin, but you can go with your gut of like, I think a lot of these are back in the game box now, so I probably won't pick up that set. And probably you're wrong, or you're right. Um, But my favourite sort of, you know, like when a key turns in a lock and, you know, you get that clicking moment in your head and you go, oh, I get it now. My favourite mechanic in it, I think, is the butter and cider, because butter and cider can be added to any set to make it tastier, which is amazing, but... You're only allowed, because of, I don't know, rules in the Mushroom Society, you're only allowed to add butter to your pan if that set is like four or more mushrooms, which is really hard to get. So butter, you'd think, well, I can go in any set. I'm definitely always going to pick up butter. But if you just are sticking, skewering butter out of trees and putting it in your basket... You are then making a bet with the game and saying, I can definitely make a set of four. And also that butter is another space in your inventory that is now taken. Exactly. That's that's it. And you can occasionally, I mean, if you want to, 
you start, I think, what with one pan, and then if you want to cook more dishes, you have to collect more pans, yep. put those down. You can also collect baskets, which increase your hand limit. Which are amazing. Which is so helpful. But, I mean, like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Everything you pick up... <laughs> You know, it matters. And if you do pick up a pan, you've got to put that down later to just get it out of your inventory because you only have so much room. And the amount of room that you have can really, really hinder you if you're just careless about your choices. It's just really clean and different it is. And, and tight and, yeah. and mean. Um, not very complicated, but, you know, with a lovely theme, lovely game, lovely balance. Like, oh, it's good, isn't it? I can see why it's had like several print runs now. Yeah. So if you were looking for a small two-player card game for your collection, that's uh, Fungi. Um, the one thing that I found about it that was quite annoying is at the end of every one of your turns, you have to add a card to the discard pile, deal out a new card, potentially throw away the discard pile and start a new discard pile. I did feel it was quite uh, sort of handsy when it came to like just doing upkeep on the table. Mm. Uh, it's a very small criticism, but it does, yeah. you know, it, it's it when you're dealing with card games that, you know, are so often supposed to be these completely smooth experiences, it was something that, you know, it was like a tiny fly in the ointment. It was oh. the, the wasp at the picnic. I was I was not bothered, but that's, that's because fair I enough. was doing all the upkeep. You were doing more of that. I, was... I kept getting confused about how many cards to put down. <laughs> well, right, doesn't that prove my point? Maybe. Anyway, should we move on to a game we can definitely agree on? Is that Village Attacks? It's Village Attacks! Quins, uh, let's pretend that you know all about Village Attacks. Ugh. I've just burst into your apartment. It's 7am. You're having your first coffee of the day. And I'm like, what's Village Attacks? I don't understand. First off, I know this is a fantasy because I'm up at 7am in this story. But funny <laughs> that you break into my apartment in this fiction because Village Attacks is a game all about people breaking into a house. So what we've got here is kind of a reverse twist on yes. um, Zombie Side, where rather than, oh, we're the good guys and we're surrounded by monsters in Village Attacks, you are the monsters, you are the Frankensteins who are in a house and all the villagers have kicked down your door, they're pouring in with pitchforks. My goodness, there's a lot of them. Uh, you've got this, well, let's not bury the lead. This is one of those Kickstarter big glossy games with like tons and tons of miniatures. Yeah. Um, you've got like five monsters you can be. You've got loads of humans with pitchforks and torches, loads of different sculpts. You've got hunters. You've got heroes that are going to threaten you. You've got upgradable powers and custom dice. And also curiously, because we were given just the base game, you've got cards that refer to miniatures that we don't have because we weren't Kickstarter backers. But, I mean, that's okay, right? Because all of these miniatures, the Build quality on these miniatures is very good. Oh, it's lovely. It looks extremely good. And then we've got these, all these different rooms, corridors. We've got a library. We've got a study. We've got the dungeon heart, which is like the center of our castle. Yeah. All of these things. And we can assemble them in different combinations for different scenarios. So like immediately this is like a kind of less, it's less dungeon crawler. It's more like tower defense, right? Because yes. we're putting up, tra this sounds great. What could possibly go wrong? Well, uh, I usually with, mm -hmm. you know, miniatures based Kickstarters, yeah. you and I tend not to look at them because often they, they avoid that key step in the board game making process where usually a designer makes a game and they have to take it to a publisher and the mm -hmm. publisher says, I like this or I don't like this, change this or don't change this, and finally it gets made. Kickstarter, of course, cuts out that middle section so you get some designers going, we want to make this, and then the customers go, we've bought it. And sometimes that means that these games look lovely, but mechanically speaking, as an experience, they're a bit of a disappointment. Yes. And this is... 
we would never ordinarily look at a game like Village Attacks, but every so often we need to check ourselves. You know, we need to make yes. we need to play games like this to make sure that our uh, what, what's the word massive biases are correct. So when we were at the UK Board Game Expo this year, you know, the Village Attacks team ran up to me. They said they they pressed a copy into my hands. They said, "Here's the picture of the game. We'd really love you to look at it." And you know what? I love the concept. Like, all of us being monsters, like you were in our game. Of, I was a lich. You're a, yeah, I've always wanted to be a dead lich. Wizard. I, was the, <laughs> I was a headless man in a weird kind of anime interpretation of the headless horseman. You can be a ghost and a vampire. And you're all living in this house like you're the Adams family. I thought it was like a really harsh version of Friends or something. And yeah, we just had this apartment. I definitely, as soon as we started, we did what I would like to imagine lots of players will do, which is start bickering in a very domestic way and being, you know, <laughs> being like, did you leave the door open? There's humans here again. I've got to set up that log trap yeah. or that spike pit. Did you even do the dishes yet? No. Also, I've knocked this person out because I'm going to carry them to the kitchen and cook them because for some reason that's a thing I have to do in this unique scenario. So anyway, we were really sold on the pitch Um, but yeah, in play it just did everything that we tend to dislike about these Kickstarters. The manual was like not particularly clear and didn't give me a lot of answers. Um, Some of the mechanics in it were really like wobbly the the actual play of it was exactly what you need from a Kickstarter, which is, in theory, incredibly exciting, but in play didn't quite come together. It didn't. There's there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot that I like about this. And I know talking about miniatures quality isn't really like hugely relevant to does this game play well, but I really appreciate their production values and I appreciate that there are folks who will have bought this and will have just had... It's like they've just bought an extra Warhammer on me or something. They have a whole bunch of yep. miniatures that they could use in all sorts of situations that are good miniatures. They've done a really good job. Oh, they're lovely. Same for as they could probably reappropriate a lot of the other stuff from the game and maybe use it somewhere else. But the the mechanics of people entering a castle and fighting them felt fine but not particularly exciting this idea that you roll dice and they're your choice of what to do this turn like some of those dice will tell you that uh, villagers advance on you some of them will allow you to do ranged attacks or combat attacks and you can re-roll some of them but the risk there is you might roll more villager movement results which is you know kind of a risk reward thing that's quite clever but none of it was compelling it was all perfectly okay mechanics for combat and perfectly okay there's a lot in the game but none of it works particularly elegantly you uh hit the nail on the head when i was teaching you the game because you have these six dice and then you roll them and the faces on the dice show what you can do so if you roll six dice and then you get a load of melee hits and some range hits you can do that many melee hits and that many ranged hits and you immediately said, well, well, hang on, what happens if I roll all the same symbol? And I said, oh, yeah, if you roll three of the same symbol, you can just roll them again. Which then you laughed at because it's like, oh, wait, hang on, so they've got this mechanic and, it, and now this, this mechanic and this rule doesn't quite work. So now there's another rule to try and make just it... ignore work. it. Yeah, you know, it, and then sure enough, when you roll those dice, they just felt really restrictive. Um, I think as well, you know, there's a reason that games like this that do work, you know, namely Descent and mm-hmm. Imperial Assault, um, or, you know, the Conan board game tend to be sort of about movement um, and about completing objectives all over the board because um, actually just standing still and fighting monsters for turn after turn after turn tends to be quite boring. And what you've got with Village Attacks is a game that does model itself after tower defense, an entire genre that is satisfying because you build these towers and then watch the system work. Yes. And you get to run around being like a weird engineer, fixing towers. Um, Whereas in Village Attacks, you don't actually have towers. It's just kind of 
it borrows that genre but misses the most important rule. So, you know, every turn villagers showed up and then every turn I was like, well, like, oh, I guess I'll kill them again, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it never, I didn't feel tension. I felt like I was, you know, doing house cleaning. Yes, that's a good point. It feels often kind of routine and I, I like the fact that there are, there's interesting elements thrown in, like you can buy a trap and put it in a room. But it all feels like it's variations of the same sort of thing. You're just buying a number or acquiring acquiring a number or a thing that has an effect and it goes away. And nothing feels... it. They're all functions and mechanics that you would have in a game, but they don't click together and they don't create anything compelling. There was a thing that you said about Descent and Imperial Assault while we were playing, which is that so many of the rules are fundamentally quite simple. So what are you going to do? Run, shoot, did it, that's it. Yeah. And then it's how you do those and the way that you combine them that are great. And this is a game that feels like it has lots of things in, but not lots of things to do. Yes. And that's the difference. Yes. Um, yep. The decision in, you know, Imperial Assault of exactly which corner to hide behind or whether to be brave or cowardly. I never felt like I had that freedom in village attacks. I felt like I rolled some dice and then I got, well, I'm going to move here and then attack here because that's what my dice let me do. And... You know, that would be the extent of my turn sometimes. Uh, it did not work for me. What a concept, though. If someone well, wants, wants to make a, uh, you know, really strong monsters defending a castle, Adam's Family style game, I am into it. Oh, and if you do, please put a reference card in your game because we oh. kept returning to the manual and we kept checking and triple checking things because... And some some of this could have just been solved with a single card that says, on your turn, do this. These symbols mean this, this. You know, a very short summary, but uh, I think we've started to take reference cards for granted. And then as soon as the game doesn't have them, we realize how vital they can be. Yep. Also, print two different booklets, one for scenarios and one for the manual, because there was loads of information we needed on the scenarios we were playing. So you turn to that page in the manual. Mm -hmm. But then every time I wanted to check a rule, I had to flip back out of that page and then find that page again, which sounds like a minor thing, but... It's not, nope. and the, the proof that it's not is in the fact that when Fantasy Flight, the masters of this stuff, with all the games that have been focus-tested to heck, put out games like this, they do do it in two separate booklets, because it does matter. And they do generally do better reference materials. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, the, it, there are a lot of Kickstarter games that we would give the same or worse criticisms of, so I don't want to pile on this one for too long, but uh, yeah, Village Attacks, it's something we played, it was a bit disappointing. Shall we end on a high then? Yes! With yes! Champions I of Midgard. I really don't like being mean. I don't like it at all. There, I, I would hope that's constructive criticism and still wonderful looking game that looked... That I, I had a nice time on a sunny day killing, killing villagers. Um, <laughs> very, very attractive looking village miniatures, all these dead people. Anyway, um, speaking of killing stuff... We played Champions of Midgard a couple of times. We have indeed. We put Vikings on boats. We sent them overseas. We sent them to the mountains. We went to a scald, I guess, and they sung songs about us. We went to a market. Quentin, what happened? What is Champions of Midgard? It sounds amazing. <laughs> if you do toot your own explanatory horn. Uh, Champions of Midgard came out in 2016, maybe. And it's currently sat, you know, very high in the Board Game Geek rankings. This is a game with a lot of love that's received two yeah, expansions. It's just outside the top 100, isn't it? Yes. yes. So the heart of it is a worker placement game. So really, Champions of Midgard is two games, which sort of wrap around each other like a kind of chocolate bar. Um, so in the mm. middle is a worker placement game. And what that is, if you've not played one before, 
Um, every player gets a few little workers who work for them. In this case, they are like Viking, you know, craftsmen or whatever. And then players take their turn claiming different actions. Like this turn, I'm going to go to the swordsman shop and get a swordsman who's going to join my army. And you might um, put your worker in the forest because you're going to go hunting for meat. Someone else meat. might uh, put a worker down at the shipyard, meaning they can build a boat. But really, we all want lots of these spaces. So when you take a space by popping your little worker down, your little worker, he's getting you a little reward. But also what he's doing is he's blocking that space so no one else can have that reward. That sounds mean. It is. Um, and the idea of this is it's a way that players can block and elbow each other but without ever creating the in-your-face conflict that lots of people find unpleasant so the first half of each round of champions of midgard is everyone putting their workers down getting wood gold songs runes warriors all this good stuff second half you are going to be fighting things yeah so in addition to your work little worker people who you're placing on the board you're getting dice when you get an axe person or a swords maiden or a spears stabby boy stabby boy um those people are actually dice and the second half of champions of midgard is in the worker phase, you picked what you're going to fight. You put a worker down, for example, on the troll that's threatening the village. And oh, went, no, really? I'm gonna, yeah, I know. That sounds dangerous. Paul, there's a troll. Someone has to kill it. It's going to be me. Good luck. It, it was me. How um, many dice are you sending? Because well, this is a thing, isn't it? So. <laughs> so I was just so excited about um, this, so talking about this. When you uh, put your worker on a monster that you're going to fight, you then have to pick how many of these dice you've amassed that you're going to send to fight it. And this is really simple. Um, every monster in the game, whether it's a an undead viking who lives in the mountains or a troll on the outskirts of the village or a even bigger monster who's overseas and you have to send your dice on a boat with a with lo- with enough beef um to fight them you then roll those dice every monster has an attack value which is how many dice it's going to kill in every round of combat that you yeah. don't kill it every dice every monster also has defense which is how many hits you need to inflict so hopefully you killed it in one round of combat just roll the dice clatter 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 and then womp he's dead if you didn't roll enough hits on your dice, it's going to go on to the next round of combat and the monster's going to hit you again and more dice are going to die. And there's a very real possibility if you were a bit too eager, a bit too underprepared to fight that troll or that lindworm or that draugr or whatever. Yeah. It's just going to kill all your dice. Well, so wait a second. This sounds like it wouldn't be so bad, providing I'd recruited enough Vikings, and maybe if I recruited enough of the Vikings that roll shields in combat so I can deflect some of those hits so they last for longer. Um, And if I'd, providing I hadn't been overambitious and sent two lots of Vikings out to fight two monsters at once and split my forces, and, you know, that'd be, I guess I could do that, couldn't I? (laughs) Well, Paul, hang on. If you were to put workers on two different (laughs) monsters and split up your army to fight two monsters and killed them both... You would earn way more points than anyone else in the game. I don't and know. And you definitely win. It sounds risky. It sounds like something that I would only do if I'd also collected a few of those um, tokens that allow me to re-roll those glory... Oh, what are they called? favor. Favor tokens. Because if I'd, if I'd correctly placed my workers during worker placement, I could have grabbed a few of those and they give me the chance to re-roll. Same for if I was going overseas where things are a bit riskier because I I have a boat that hopefully... Maybe I've built it myself or maybe I'm using the public... The, the low-quality public like the boat. Bus. Yeah. Um, there's only so much space on that for so many Vikings, but hopefully I've combined the right number of Vikings with the right amount of food yeah. to feed them on their journey. And then also, you know, hopefully I've planned ahead enough because there will be a journey card that I'll flip and it might tell me the journey was safe. Mm-hmm. It might tell me I've been ambushed by a sea monster. It might say there was a storm and I've lost some dice or some food. 
But no, I mean, all of this sounds fine, providing I just, I'm a careful Viking and I plan ahead and well, so this don't is take it. risks, it, right? Uh, yeah, and this is, let's be clear, I think you and I agree that it is a super strong game. I really enjoyed this. Um, it is, while it is two games in one, and that can be a bit intimidating for people, they work together in a way that isn't, it's going to be too much if you're completely, completely new to board games. Mm-hmm. But if you can get your head around it, it interacts in such a pleasant way. Because, for example, worker placement is such an obvious mechanic. It's like there are spaces on the board you really want. You definitely want to get those incredible axe vikings. Yes. You definitely want to, like, I don't know, visit the scald who's going to tell you about journey cards. But you also definitely want to be the one to fight that rubbish monster that you can kill The easily. cheap and easy one. So yeah. you want to book that spot first if you can. So, Much as you want to book every spot first. Yes, but it's just this nice thing that um, if you take the easy monster, then that person who knows they have to kill something this turn to stay in the running to win the game is then going to go like, oh, well, hang on, do I fight the big monster and lose all my <laughs> dice? And of course, it's nice and tense because even if you're fighting something small, you never know when you're going to roll like all blanks. Yes. Because the dice are kind of, they're designed in such a way where about half of the faces are hits usually, except yep. for the Axemen, which means that surprisingly often you just get all blanks or all hits. And I mean, we use the phrase slot machine on Shut Up and Sit Down a lot, um, but it feels like the good kind of slot machine board mm. game where, you know, you do your preparation, then what happens? It's like, cha-ching, cha-ching, oh, you got all hits. You've killed the Lindworm and brought back a ton of gold. It's, yeah, it's just um, exciting, straightforward, cute. Collecting dice is fun. I do like the presentation of this. I like the fact that you, first of all, you you have the tactile element of you have like eight slots on your board for eight different dice. You can have whatever combination of axe people and sword people you like, but you physically collect them and you put them on your board and you roll them to see them fight and then you have to hand them away as they die or re-roll them if you like and then see which shields or whatever do I want to keep. Uh, Same as you collect, obviously, all the other tokens and resources. You've got this very clear, very well-presented board with all its different locations. You've got these monsters that do look like cool fantasy monsters. It looks presentable and easy to understand. And, like, the last time we played, we had a pretty novice board gamer. And out of five people, she came, what, second or third or something? Mm -hmm. Because it was a level of, like, it is maybe not my first board game for everybody, but it's accessible. It's got a thing that a lot of people understand and people very quickly get the importance of worker placement and they get the randomness and risk of combat. And everybody understands taking a risk and everybody understands, you know, the fundamental mechanics of like, I'll just, if I throw more dice at this problem, I'm likely to do better. If I divide my resources, I'm living on a prayer and there we go. I would, uh, so the nicest thing I can say about it is lots of people talk about how um, a really great, worker placement game for beginners is Lords of Waterdeep or or Stone Age, both of which games that we either never really liked or have cooled on a bit. I I never find Lords of Waterdeep a particularly exciting game. Lots of people do. Champions of Midgard, I feel, is that my first worker placement game. I feel that it is exciting and silly. Um, But the reason I think I'm not completely wild about it, (gasps) I think I don't like it as much as you do. I think it's Uh good, but out of the two of us, to give the listeners a little behind-the-scenes peek here, Paul is the one who's saying, like, oh, we definitely have to do a video review of this, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. And I know you're (laughs) right, because it's really good. I'm just not that... 
It's going to look so nice on video. Look at all those colourful dice and like some of them have got swords and, I know. and we played with the expansion that's got archers and they're really good at hunting so they get you extra food. I Who know. doesn't want food? And there's another expansion where your leader of your oh, Viking camp yeah. is a special dice and they can and die. And it's, it's got Valhalla and all those special... It's got a weird shop. Glorious. Where when your Vikings die they then become sort of death coins and you can spend your dead Vikings on treasure and it's <laughs> it's good it's really good but the thing so oh. the moments in it that I love yeah uh, that I love more than anything and this happens to me I even love it when it happens to me is when someone books to fight a monster and they roll some dice and it's awful and like they fail to kill the monster all the dice die because those are the highest you would I think admit this like in terms of moments when everyone around the table is laughing and just having such a good time it's when a monster turns around and womps someone it's like I was thinking about Galaxy Trucker mm-hmm. and how the reason Galaxy Trucker is good is every round has the possibility of like, I can do this and then reliably like multiple times in a game of Galaxy Trucker you just you just get dicks an asteroid hits that bit of your ship and suddenly it's two bits yeah. and all the men are in one bit and, and everyone all looking at the cargo which is in the other bit <laughs> and everyone's crying laughing or like two like the crew is separated from the cargo but the only engines left on the ship are attached to the cargo module yeah. so the cargo just gets sent blasting off to like deep space like Galaxy Tracker is a game that fulfills its premise right whereas Champions of Midgard it is great it is clever it is fun but like for me the real peak of the game is when the Vikings are killed or when there's real tension and I feel like that is maybe 5% of the fights in Champion of Midgard, and 95% of the fights are, you rolled the dice, you got roughly what you wanted, the monster's dead, we move on. Which isn't... If you're if you're going to give me a dice game, then I want that dice roll to always be interesting and exciting. Yeah. And, in, and that is the case in, like, Imperial Assault and Descent, which we keep bringing up for, on this podcast for some reason. But in Imperial Assault, there is always a 1 in 6 chance you will miss, and it will be the worst thing, which means every dice roll in Imperial Assault is terrifying. <laughs> whereas in well not terrifying but you know it's, yeah, it's exciting and there's real. an investment right whereas Champions of Midgard you're rolling so many dice I never have any kind of prediction of what I'm going to get because I'm rolling like six, four, five dice mm-hmm. so they clatter across the table and I look at them and it's like yeah that's probably roughly what I expected and the monster dies so okay so you know, I don't sound like too curmudgeonly no, right no this is this is fair I mean the 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 sensible thing to do as a viking is assemble a force of a bunch of different dice send it all in and you see how many Vikings are going to die, but you're pretty confident that you're going to be fine. So it's like, three of my Vikings died, and I killed the giant dude. Right. Um, whereas in... Do you remember I was doing some reading about dice games, like mm-hmm. the history of the entire genre of dice games, the dice games people used to play in the pub in the 40s and 50s? What's interesting about those is that the vast majority of them see players only rolling one, two, maybe three dice. And the reason why is you kind of you know what the odds are on two dice, right? Like, I think rolling four or five dice, like, or you know, when you play Games Workshop and you roll 20 dice, you just have that moment where you just roll them and then you look down to them like you're looking at tea leaves and you're like, what just happened? And because you're robbed of that instantaneous, yes, I got a six, or whatever, um, the whole roll just gets really muddy. Yeah, this one, that's absolutely right, that's true. Uh, And two, generally, the more dice that you're going to roll the more chance you're going to get whatever you want somewhere in there. You right. know, the more things even out and you'll have some high r- results, some low results, you won't have a thing where just with two dice you get boxcars or you get snake eyes exactly. or you get the most likely roll of seven. It's going to be, uh, you know, I got a kind of an average result kind of thing here again. Yeah. Same as I did before. Exactly. Um, and it's a thing with like, 
high-level spells in D&D where it's like roll 10d6 and it's like, well, I'm probably going to get a relatively average number from that unless I've got some power where I can re-roll everything that's under three because a big wash of dice is much more... You know, there's no distinction there. Yeah. So in Champions of Midgard, weirdly, the the dicey combat side, which should be the most exciting, I found myself checking the most, like sort of checking out. Okay. The that's most fair. because when you've got like we were played a we played a big five player game and it became you know there would be like five six seven fights each round and statistically all of them would be that player rolls some dice counts up and kills the monster but the admin are actually waiting for everyone to do that took quite a bit of time and okay. like I would have been more in- I, weirdly I found myself more interested in the worker placement because when someone put a, put a worker down I often cared yeah um, obvious, so yeah that's my that is the best I've been able to explain of why I'm I think that, that I think that's wholly fair and I think that's a very good point and similarly, um, we were told that Champions of Midgard becomes the most exciting when you add, or becomes the best when you add the Valhalla expansion, which means whenever a dice dies, like we said, it becomes a coin that you can spend in the afterlife. Mm-hmm. So if you do lose all your Vikings in a fight, it's fine, because you can then spend them on a new shop. They become, that becomes an exciting moment. And that just seems like... We've not played with it yet, because that just seems so antithetical to the one exciting thing in the game, which, as which we is losing. Which is losing, and players going, you know what... I'm going to fight this monster even though I'm not prepared because they're staking something there. Do you remember in the game we played where there was a monster which everyone who hit it, like, um, I forget what it was, but everyone who touched this monster would be killed? Yes. And so I chose to send one dice to fight it because it was an axe person. Two-thirds chance, it kills it. One-third chance, the axe person dies and I've wasted my turn. But that was the best moment in mid because it was one dice because everyone knew the stakes, everyone knew the odds, everyone knew it was me being brave and I rolled it and I killed the monster, and that felt great. And that is what I want in the game, as opposed to sort of this weird spread betting thing that should be exciting, but maybe isn't that exciting. No, that, I think that is absolutely fair and valid, and a very interesting way to look at what is one of the main mechanics of the game. Mm. So what are we going to do? Um, We could just push this into the long grass for a while and come back to it. So you you can't feel that strongly then? I really like... I think that's a really good criticism and like exactly the thing we would talk about in a review. Uh, I still think it's a game that is really accessible and well-presented and fun. Yep. I wonder if... I wonder if we would play it with both expansions bolted on. I mean, I liked doing it with the expansion that gave us archers and extra monsters because yeah. those archers were just... It, usually I don't want more stuff from an expansion, but it was just one more type of dice, a couple more monsters. And I actually liked that extra variety in there, a few more yeah. locations to visit. Yeah. I I still like it, but also your criticism is 100% on there. But, it didn't because sh- but my criticism didn't change that the rest of you guys had a great time. We had a great time, and I there is an element in there where there's custom dice and there's just some nonsense dice rolling. And there is a part of that that is now hardwired into the connections of my brain to be associated <laughs> with fun from like the age of 10 yeah uh so i can look at that and go yeah i can see why some people don't want to do that but i still kind of like doing that it's the same for like rolling a d20 in D, even though there's fundamentally so many silly things about why am i rolling a 20-sided dice <laughs> when the two possible results are success or failure isn't there some different way to do this but I still roll it and go, oh, I fell over. Oh, I, I hit the monster. Oh, I fell over. And you have a great time. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't uh, know what's wrong with me. Let's, okay, we'll shove that game into the long grass. We'll right. play with an expansion. We'll... Let's, see, let's see what people say in the comments as well. I mean, if there is an angry mob, 
and we have to move overseas, then we've messed up. If there is uh, unadulterated cult-like worship for our choices, <laughs> then we ask, we set up like a, a you know tax-exempt religion, and then we just change everything about what we do. I haven't really thought about this. To I be think honest. this sounds like a great plan. Fab. Put your hand in my mailbag from your letter. Paul, I'm worried. I think we've been letting the mailbag get out of hand recently. Out of hand? Look at this vein here. See that it's, vein. It's bulging. Oh, I thought you talked about like a vein of like gold. Well, I mean, there are many rich seams, seams. Of, of letters in there. It seems that there are so a I lot think of letters in the vein. You have to go in now. And why don't you pull out not one, but two letters? I've mixed my metaphor, so I'm going to chip my way into this seam of gold letters. So Caleb Horn writes uh, with one or both of his hands, Do you feel that there has been a shift in Shut Up and Sit Down's taste taste in games in recent years? And if this is the case, how have they changed? How has that that taste uh, metamorphosized? Do you think Quinn's Matt and Paul of Back Yonder would have recommended the games that you are recommending now? All right. I'm going to immediately base this train head on and say, yes, I feel like... Particularly, like, compared to seven years ago, I was more excited and more solely excited about Euro games and dungeon crawler type things and things with a lot of dice rolling. And, like, the Paul from seven years ago, for example, would have enjoyed Village Attacks a lot more and been more forgiving of some of its errors. Yeah. And the Paul of seven years ago would have been way more enthusiastic about Agricola, uh, which is a game that I played a lot and sort of it's fallen out of. I've just, I've had enough of that. I've played enough of that. And I do feel like, because we've covered so many different kinds of games and we've covered accessible games, party games, what we would call lighter games, which is something like, you know, at at one point I might have looked at that and gone, oh, that's nice, but that's not my kind of thing. I feel like Mm. by broadening my taste, I have actually broadened the amount of stuff I appreciate. And I like complicated things, but I now like simple things. I like tight games for a couple of people that are very dense and I like silly party games that are funny as well as clever well it's interesting isn't it because one of the things we're sure to do in reviews now as we appreciate that board games are really expensive is when a game comes on that we think is good we say yeah yeah this is great but maybe buy these other games first yeah you know which just isn't something we would have been able to do back in the day i mean if you're say a movie critic you can watch a ton of movies but Board games are so much more expensive. They take so mm-hmm. much more time and investment of energy to learn and invite friends over and play them that, you know, there's no way anyone can have played enough to be, like, to recommend other games when they're reviewing stuff when they start this career, right? So it's something that I've become acutely aware of. We were just loose cannons back in the day. We were wild and mad. I got mm-hmm. linked the other day that... Uh, our Blueprints video, because yeah. some of our fans think that's one of our funniest videos ever. A, dice, a small dice game called Blueprints. And I went back and watched it, and it's true, we were very funny. But also, uh, you know, it, I would never have been so um, happy and giddy about a game that sort of worked back then. There's no consideration in that review for, well, let's think about other small box games that occupy the same price range that might offer you more fun. You know, we were just less good at being consumer advocates. I, I would argue that we... We hadn't played as many back then, but also there weren't quite as many back then because no. it's now four or five years ago, 2014, 2013, yeah. maybe. Um, so, I, did, I mean, the other side of this coin as well is 
everything with the perspective of time and with the perspective of more games coming out, all recommendations naturally become wobbly because whatever you're into, if it's video games or like you say, films or music or whatever, after you spend ages and ages in something and more things get introduced into that giant swirling milieu, 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 Melange? meringue of things that exist. Oh, milieu. 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 <laughs> I mean, um, our French listeners are currently pulling their ears I'm out. from Hampshire. They don't teach you any words in Hampshire. No. It's awful. Um, you know, naturally, goalposts shift and things change. It's like you, you look at films from the 30s and some have aged very well and some haven't, and you just go, this film looks shonky, but people loved it at the time. Well, there is um, a thing that happens with critics that... Um, as you know, critics and as people who have are friends with a lot of people who make their living from like reviewing stuff, mm-hmm. there is a really interesting thing that happens with criticism. Because when you're new in an industry and you're like 22 and you're writing, you know, you're really energetic and you love these things and they're so amazing. But critics naturally uh, become more cynical and jaded with time. Because, no, we don't. Well, so this is I'm some, not cynical. This is true, right? Because <laughs> some of them don't. This is you kind of there are two streams, right? where critics either become more cynical because, my goodness, you know, if you're a board game reviewer, you've played a thousand board games, you know? If you still, you know, adored them as much, that would that would be weird to me, you know? And it's more likely that you'll have seen a thing that reminds you of another thing, which is maybe exactly. good or bad or fine, but it, it feels immediately familiar and so less exciting. Or if nothing else, once you've played a game, once you've played a thousand miniatures games, then obviously miniatures don't hold... The, they might still hold appeal to you, but they might not hold the same kind of appeal. Yeah, because you know the 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 joy of like opening a box and seeing a little plastic man might have worn off a little bit. You know, everyone likes ice cream, but if you eat ice cream literally every day, then maybe you still like it, but at best your relationship to it will have changed. Yes. However, there is another kind of stream that critics go down, which. I cannot fathom and continues to creep me out to this day. Like some of the people who, because uh, I used to be a video game writer, you did as well. You still yes. write about video games. A tiny bit. So yeah. do I to some extent. But s- some people who I came up with who still just adore video games in the same way after being in that industry for 10 years is mind blowing to me. Like, how could you see how the sausage is made? How could you come through Gamergate? How could you be playing the same game over and over and over again as publishers release them year on year on year and not be like, you know, how could you still have the same joy? It's, it's, it boggles my my mind. Is boggled by some of the people so I used to work with. We would say recommendations do change a bit, but people change, and the market changes, and the media changes. And I'm just glad there is more stuff out there because there are more things that I enjoy. I would never like when we started. Shut up and sit down. I would never have thought that a game like Two Rooms and a Boom would ever exist. Yeah. Uh, which I've had terrific fun with and still really like. And I guess it's it's adding stuff like that to um, the milieu. <laughs> the melange. Ah, <laughs> uh, the meringue that has, has made me made me happy and I'm kind of glad that I've become that person I'm also happy that I'm the person who appreciates a wider amount of things rather than the person who's like this isn't like the other stuff everything should be the same you're not a proper serious gamer if you like this game because it's quick and easy and takes 10 minutes I'm, I, I'm glad I've not become that no it thrills me that this year person. as we have like become like the most veteran we'll ever be or whatever we're looking at rolling rights I also find it interesting that um as content creators, we are not 
creating content in a way that is like at all sustainable you know that um recently our reviews have started to more and more have this conclusion where we go this is really good it's not as good as this thing we reviewed two, three, four, five years ago. You know, gradually, Shut Up and Sit Down is detaching itself from the hype cycle and going, <laughs> well, hang on, no, let, don't get excited because you probably still haven't bought these other games that are better, that are still in print. Hopefully that's useful to people to get a wider perspective of what's out there and for us to say, I guess, you know, this answers this question as well when we say some of these, yeah, we do still recommend oh, absolutely. years on. I have no uh, doubt that it is absolutely the most useful thing to our viewers, but it's funny because the best thing a website can do in terms of its own traffic is to attach to that hype cycle and every new game that comes out go, well this is amazing and this other game's amazing and these are the top 10 games that are coming out this year that are going to be amazing and that's how you get hits, that's how you you know, capture the sort of attention of people but we do something which I think is more valuable which is go, stop getting excited! Get that, stop standing on that chair, take that lollipop out your mouth and go and play this game from four years ago that looks ugly because it's better. Crikey, Dad. <laughs> but I mean, you agree, right? Yeah, I think I think some perspective is good. I think we still get excited often, but well, tempering yes. that with some perspective doesn't hurt and fundamentally, I don't know, things cost money and I think it's better to encourage people to think about how they spend rather than just tick every box and approve everything and just be like yeah yeah just buy this yeah this is this is quite good it's not quite as good as yeah just buy it buy them all buy everything buy it all the time forever Gosh, until you're dead it's funny isn't it because shut up and sit down started with the very simple mandate of board games are amazing we want to tell people that board games are amazing and now we have so many views in our videos that we're like Gosh, guys, don't buy this board game, <laughs> you know? Like, we've ended up with this weird mantle of responsibility where we're, like, trying to put the brakes on an industry that keeps buying board games when maybe that's not the best thing for their entertainment, you know? I mean, we can do both. We do do both. I'm being a bit yeah. silly. But no, can... no, it's it's just a thing to, to think about, It's a I curious guess. change mm, of situation. Mm. So, in conclusion, buy games, but don't. Yes. Sometimes. And, uh, I hope whatever other question you pulled out of the mailbag is a lot simpler. Ah, uh, shall we go for this one here? Yes, indeed. All right, this, uh, this is a very heavy one that I've retrieved from the seam. It's from Emma, and she says, Hi, guys, which is immediately a good introduction. I think it's one it's of the, the better introductions. Quinns keeps dropping knitting references. Will he please just come out as a knitter? Or if he is sadly not a knitter, would it be possible for him to reveal who is the knitter in his life? <laughs> as it is plainly obvious that he is lucky enough to know someone who knits. Uh, thanks for everything you do. So pleased to find your site. This is very nice. Um, even though I can't make it to Shucks, your convention safety policy was really amazing to read. That is actually a very nice additional thing to mention to us as well. Uh, we'll be talking about Shucks again soon in a video briefly. Won't we, we will indeed. We will indeed. So, um, knitting. Yes. Are you a knitter? I've not said that word so much in one occasion ever in my life. I am not a knitter. You are not knit. No I one close to me is a knitter, but I thought this was an interesting email because I do, you know, we talk about things knitting together. We talk a lot about clockwork as well. I'm just waiting for the email from, you know, a, a clockworker. That's not the word. What's the word for it? A horologist. A horologist. Great. Thanks, man. Um, you know, two writes in and going, are you guys taking apart watches in your spare time? Because there's constantly cogs and clockwork when we're talking about I did that once when I was a it? kid and all the springs went pioing. Oh, yeah, they, they go flying, don't yep. they? 
Yes, they do. Um, so, yeah, I really thought I wanted to talk about this because it's funny the language we use, isn't it? I don't know, is it? Well, I think it is. Because when we review board games, we end up having to use all these bizarre terms and metaphors to try and talk about how mechanics work, how it plays. Because obviously, while language is organic, when you go off the deep end of something like board game design and you need to talk about how it feels, it becomes tremendously nebulous. And then suddenly you need to start talking about knitting to try and describe how... Um, the fabric of a Euro game comes together. Feel like, I mean, I agree. I feel like hopefully in our uh, autumn years, we are seasoned people who are well-read and we have taken language and mastered it and essentially harnessed it to the front of the chariots that we used to charge through our professional lives. Wow. And we whippered it. Wow. And we're like, go this way, language, and language obeys. Goodness. And depending on how much language we have, that's like the number of horses that we have at the front of our chariot. That is true. Uh, but I don't know. There's there's all sorts of ways to apply different concepts and different ideas and something is a metaphor for something else and then gradually you uh, weave. See, that's not knitting, that's something else. You weave these things together. Um, as a knitting aside, I guess I know a few friends of mine who knit and it... <laughs> Well, so growing up, it was just portrayed like knitting and weaving and needlework. And a lot of these things are portrayed as something that mostly women are just supposed to do that's boring and silly and a bit idle. Yes. Until somebody knits you something that's really good, at which point you go, oh, hang on, that's really good. Yeah. Oh, oh this is actually a useful no, skill to I'm oh, well aware right. that the yeah. internet, same as the internet's been good for board games, the internet has been great for knitting. And people are knitting all kinds of great stuff. There's all kinds of amazing knitting scenes all over the world. I it's, wish I, wish yeah. I could knit. It is actually kind of weird to see how much the internet has take, picked this thing up and it people share stuff and they talk about stuff and you look at it and you go, oh, hang on, that's actually, that's really good. Yeah, but that's the, really cool. the last thing I'll say about this is that um, I was being interviewed about the review process by someone recently, I can't remember who, but I said to them in one of those circumstances where you hear yourself speaking and then you realise, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, but I was saying that um, it's... Being able to understand why a board game works is actually only half the job. If you can psychologically, like, you know why you're having fun and you know why a game does or doesn't work, that is not the entire job. Because also, to be a reviewer, you then need to be able to express that yeah. to people. And we encounter this when you interview board game designers who've made amazing things and you try and talk to them about why it works. And board game designers, while they maybe know more about design than any journalist have no ability to express them. So they, they make amazing things, but they can't talk about why. Mm. Similar to like, you know, athletes or anyone who does something like to a great extent. So yeah, yes, we use knitting analogies. We use all kinds of bizarre metaphors and it's only going to get weirder because that's the language we have to use to try and express something that is ineffable. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Articulating a thing is different to just doing the thing. Exactly. So let's articulate ourselves out of this podcast All right. by saying thanks bye uh, yeah we've, we've way overrun haven't we so we should just say goodbye bye bye <laughs>